The title for this morning's sermon, as it's in the bulletin, is Epistemic Authority, which I I imagine may cause you to scratch your head and say, what is that? And that just means simply, who do we trust? Who do you trust to tell you the truth? If you want the real truth, who do you go to? Now, in our culture, in this time, in this place, some people go to the New York Times to tell you the truth. Or some people go to National Public Radio. I've teased in various ways. I grew up in a church tradition that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I've ended up in a church where the motto is, National Public Radio said it, I believe it, that settles it. (laughs) And some people believe Fox News is the only real news. And if it's not on Fox, it's not true. Now, you may disagree with any of those groups, whether they like the New York Times or NPR or Fox, but I would suggest if in conversation your attitude is, well, you dunderhead, how can you listen to that? That's not real. That's not a helpful conversation. And whatever it is you want to talk about will likely fall on deaf ears. Because people have reasons why they trust, whether it's Fox News or the New York Times or the Washington Post or NPR, whatever it is, they have reasons why they believe that's their epistemic authority. That's the truth. Well, that's a conversation for another time, how you land there or get there. But in this text, that's really what's going on. The gospel text that Sherry read to us We have a story where Jesus, James, John, and uh, Andrew, no, no, is that right? Peter, 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 James, and John, and Jesus go up on the mountain. I believe they think it was Mount Tabor in Israel. And Jesus is there, and Moses and Elijah show up. And Moses and Elijah are not just willy-nilly Uh, two people that were available at that time and place. They represent the best of Judaism at the time. Moses represents the law, the Torah, and Elijah was the greatest of all the prophets. And so these two represent, they're sort of shorthand for who would have heard this gospel first back in Matthew's day. They're shorthand for the Bible. Because for the Jews of that day, the Bible was the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And the Torahs, the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Bible, and that's attributed to Moses. And then you had the the prophets, where Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Elijah are thrown in to the prophets. And then there were the writings, which were the what we call the historical books, uh, Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, but that was the, the Bible in that time and place. So this is shorthand for the Bible is being represented with Moses and Elijah being here. So here's the context of this. This is So there's Jesus and Moses and Elijah and Peter, James and John are watching this and then the cloud comes over and the voice of God says, listen to Jesus which is as if to say Jesus is more trustworthy than the Bible. Now that was probably very shocking to them. 
What a statement. That's like saying, if in our congregation this morning, if a cloud descended in the sanctuary and the voice of God said, there is Mary Martin, my beloved disciple, and don't listen to the Bible anymore. Listen to what Mary Martin has to say. She's got the truth. I mean, that would be shocking. Well, not to many of us that know Mary Martin, it wouldn't be shocking. But to some of you that don't know her, that could be shocking. But that's what it was like for these Peter, James, and John. Oh my goodness. Jesus is a greater truth to be trusted than even the Bible. Now, I would suggest coming to that kind of an opinion about Jesus is a faith experience. It comes from a spiritual experience, which Peter, James, and John had. I mean, they saw Jesus transfigured before them, bright and shining. And not just Jesus' body, his clothes became so white they couldn't even look at it. And you guys weren't at the Zoom service this morning online, but when we did the Zoom service, I was at home, and the sunshine was shining through my window and reflected off my bald head. So there was this radiant light all around me on the Zoom and I thanked God for the show and tell portion of the sermon where it looked like I was transfigured by the blinding sunshine. But I, that was just special effects. That wasn't good. But Peter, James, and John have a spiritual experience on this mountain. And when you have a spirit, when you have a real spiritual experience, you don't want to leave. That's why Peter says, let's, let's put up house, let's put up tents. This is cool. This is great. You don't want to leave because it's so life-changing. But that's how folks come to the opinion of Jesus, that Jesus is divine or sacred and, and God incarnate. And you can't convince somebody of that. You can't scientifically prove that. That is a faith statement that people come to in an, in an experiential way. And the point of the text is God is saying in this text, listen to Jesus. Now, I would like to say a couple of things. I, I struggle with this text. I have some difficulty with it. And it's not because I don't believe it. I very much believe it. I mean, that's my personal belief, is that Jesus is divine. But I know I can't prove that. And I can't make you believe that. Each of us has to come to that in our own life experience and from our own heart. But what happens, people take this kind of a text and we try to beat others over the head to believe the way we do. We try to convert people with a text like this. And I struggle mightily with the whole concept of trying to convert people. And yes, I realize I am a pastor at a church saying that. But historically, churches have worked really hard at trying to convert people. I personally, and I realize I'm swimming upstream on this, but I struggle with that. Because the whole presumption is if I try to convert you, it means I know something you don't know. I know better than you. Or I am better than you. Or I've got insight that you don't have. And so the basic presumption in trying to convert somebody 
is that I'm somehow better or smarter than you are. And I struggle with that. Because my experience, if someone has an authentic spiritual experience, it is the opposite of feeling better than anybody else. The, a real spiritual experience, when somebody's had a real spiritual experience, I mean, like this records, you don't feel elitist at all. You are overwhelmed with humility. It's, oh, I had no idea. I was worried about making rent or uh, paying the electric bill or getting my podcast listened to or whatever. And you realize how vast and immense and spectacular this divine other is. And it's, oh, I had no clue. And, and you experience an interconnectedness with all other people and beings on this planet. Oh my goodness, we're all in this together. And so it, it is the opposite of creating an elitist attitude. It is incredibly humbling. And we realize how little we really know. And, and the other thing that a real spiritual experience does is it opens our hearts to be more compassionate, more compassionate with ourselves and with others. And so taking this text to try to beat people up, you have to believe this about Jesus, for me, violates the whole premise of what this text is about. And I would suggest in the history of our church in the last couple of years, where we've really hurt each other's feelings is when we've tried to convert each other. Because you can really hurt people's feelings when you're actively trying. You, you need to see, don't you realize the climate's going this and we've got to change, we've got to do this. And, and, and I said, look, it's good to be passionate about what we believe. I don't want to not be passionate, but I also want to hold things lightly and in an inviting way to not beat people over the head. Or you have to believe Jesus is this, or you have to believe this. And where we've, in the history of our community, when we try to convert each other, we really can hurt each other's feelings. And so there's another way, and I think the other way is represented in what Sherry read to us out of that story of the first reading. And so let me suggest this to you. And the first reading is from the, the book of Second Kings. And the story is the city of Jerusalem was under siege by the Arameans, who were another tribe and, and culture around trying to uh, conquer the land. And so the Arameans have laid siege to Jerusalem for several months. And the people inside the city are starving to death. There's no food. There's no water. It's a dire situation. People are dying daily because there is no food. They are eating anything they can find. And they're terrified because they're under siege and they can't escape. And outside the city gate, there's four lepers, four beggars, and they have a, a conference. And they say to each other, look, if we go back into the city, we're just going to starve to death and die. 
Or if we go surrender to the Arameans, they're likely to kill us and we're going to die. So we're going to die one way or the other, slow or fast. I'd rather die fast than slow. So let's go see if the Arameans will take mercy on us. So they go wandering off to the Aramean camp and lo and behold, they find there's no Arameans there because they didn't know the night before the Arameans thought God had brought other armies to attack them from behind and for fear of their own lives, they fled and they left all of their food and their clothing and their weapons and their stuff and they ran for their lives thinking God had brought other armies to attack them. So these four beggars show up in the Aramean camp and there's all this food and stuff and they start gorging themselves because they're hungry and they think, oh, this is incredible, this is fabulous. And in the middle of their feasting, one of them says, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, this isn't right. A couple hundred yards away, there's a whole city of people starving to death, suffering, and we're here gorging ourselves. This isn't good. So they stop their feasting and they go back to the city and they say, everybody, come on out. Ali Ali Enfri, the Arameans are gone. There's food aplenty. Come on. And the people come out of the city and the city is saved. And I suggest for those of us here in this house that that's the approach to take to the world around us. Because we live in a, in a place where people are starving for affection, to fit in, to belong, to be safe, to be accepted for who I am. And we can say, instead of trying to convert them, you've got to believe Jesus is God. You've got to do it. Instead of that, saying, hey, we're just some beggars and we found food. You want to come see if the food's any good? We found a place. We found food. So instead of an arrogant, you need to change. We can simply come and say, here's where we found some food. If you found food, let's share. Let's make a potluck out of this. What food have you found? Here's the food we found. And that in an inviting way, we can all be transformed into what God might dream for us to be. So that's what I get out of these readings and these texts. I'll share with you. I I know I've read portions of this to you before, but it's so important to me. My most trusted, you know how God said, trust Jesus, you can listen to him. Well, for me, one of the voices I most trust in my life was a man named Thomas Merton who died in 1968. He was a Catholic monk. And for the first 20 years of his life, he fled to this monastery in Kentucky to pray and make himself holy because he was kind of a wild guy in his youth. And uh, he wanted to really make himself as holy as he could be. And then one day in like, I think it was 1958, he was walking down the street in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, he had an experience on the corner of 4th and Walnut, which is now 4th and Muhammad Ali Boulevard, which is fabulous. And he just had this, he just, his eyes were opened. And this is what he says. He saw that he was just a regular human being 
like all of the other human beings walking around in downtown Louisville. And he literally cried out, thank God, thank God, I'm like the rest of men and women. That I, and his implication that I don't have to try to live up to be this holy monk anymore. I'm just a person. And he said, I have the immense joy of being a human, a member of the race in which God himself became incarnate as if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me. Now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this. But it can't be explained. There's no way of telling people that they're walking around shining like the sun. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war or hatred, or cruelty, or greed, or racism. I suppose the big problem would be that we would all fall down and worship each other. But this can't be seen, only believed and understood by a particular gift. I have no program for this seeing, Merton writes. It is only given, but the gate of heaven is everywhere. That's a spiritual experience. It opens our eyes to see the beauty of each other and to get over our petty differences and we stop trying to convert each other to this, that, or the other thing. But we realize we're in this together and let's grow together. I'll close with a, another Catholic, Richard Rohr, who says none of us goes into our spiritual maturity completely of our own accord or by a totally free choice. We are drawn by mystery, which religious people rightly call grace. I would suggest Peter, James, and John experienced grace on that mountain with Jesus. Some of us have experienced grace in this room. Some of us have experienced grace in nature. Some of us experienced grace in being with our families. Some of us have experienced grace being all alone, just praying. However, the goal is we share the grace and, and listen to each other where others have found grace and that we grow more in love with God and with each other. May it be so.